0: I'm really excited to 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 be in this passage. I'm really excited to be with you. I'm an elder here, as as we talked about, um, and I love you. And so, therefore, uh, I'm thankful that I get to share God's word, and, and I pray that the Spirit speaks through through me and and uh, and speaks to you. So, let's go to um, Acts five seventeen, um, and we're going to read through forty two. So, bear with me. Uh, This is a, a relatively long passage. It says, Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived... They convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priest heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. "'Someone came and reported to them, "'Look, the men you you put in jail "'are standing in the temple teaching the people.' "'Then the commander went with the servants "'and brought them in without force "'because they were afraid the people might stone them. "'After they brought them in, "'they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, "'and the high priest asked, "'Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? "'Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching "'and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. "'Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men uh, to be taken outside for a little while. He said to the men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and, and, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers, followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone, for if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had, the, had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out. This is amazing. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word, specifically here in the text and Acts, and thank you for the apostles and what we see teach us. And... Uh, let your, your word just uh, bless our lives and, and flow over our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in the book of Acts, um, and we have been since October. And uh, the book of Acts is, is all about the start of the Christian church. Um, this week, we're, we're in five, and, uh, and really since four and, in, and through seven, we're going to see that there's a ton of opposition um, against the apostles and against the early church because of, of the, pop, the, the name of Jesus was gaining so much popularity uh, that it was really threatening the religious elite. We're going to come back to, to chapter 5, but I, but I want I to I wanna go back to, to 4 for a minute because it's, uh, it's synonymous in many ways with, with this text, and it really sets the stage for the motivation um, for, for the heroic courage of these apostles. Okay, so chapter four the apostles, um, these, these upstart church planners, uh, stand before the religious leaders and uh, they're being rebuked for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Peter, with, filled with the Spirit, tells them that the healing of the crippled man was done in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. It's that man by which we have salvation, and there is no other name by which we must be saved. I think mean, naturally, uh, the leadership council threatened them and commanded that they do not speak of Jesus. But Peter says, we can only speak of what we have seen and heard. And it just ticks them off, right? They're, they're enraged. Um, they clearly don't like what they're saying, and, and they want to kill the apostles. But what do the apostles do next? And this is what, again, sets the stage here they lifted their voices to the Lord and prayed for boldness. I think they were praying for boldness because they were staring death in the face. They, they were like, are you kidding me? What, what are you asking me to do here? What are, what are we doing? I think for me, this is where it gets really tough. Uh, I, I, can, I can be all about the fact that uh, we're starting these incredible churches. The, the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. There's unity that and that. There's solidarity and giving. Um, we're giving to the needy, we're, we're selling our possessions and providing for other people, but this is where it starts to get pretty tough. This is where the, the opposition really becomes real for these guys. And so they go to the Lord and they say, I, I don't know what to do. I know what you're asking me to do, but what do I do? Um, I'm, I'm really scared. And he answers with this. He says, they, He says. Um, as they were praying for boldness, he gives them, it says the place shook, and he gave them the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and it emboldened them to continue preaching. So we see liberation among the apostles. We see perseverance in the face of persecution, and we see unity um, with this proclamation of Jesus among the disciples here. They're, those are all courageous outcomes. But what, the, the question that I want to ask is what, what um, motivates this courage. And this is where I want to spend our time today. I think what motivates this courage is that it is a complete dependency on God. It's a realignment of our hearts to God. And I think this is particularly relevant in the season uh, of Advent where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And if we look at Jesus, he is completely dependent on his sender. He says yes and comes to earth. He, 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 God becomes flesh and comes down to earth. And he modeled it for us. He modeled what it looks like to, to depend on the heavenly father. And he wants us to model him. That's the theological truth. He models his father. We model him. But there's more about this dependence than just the theological. It's, very, it's deeply personal. Being dependence, dependent on Jesus changes who you are. It, it changes your reality. And that's, that's what I hope uh, we see today is that, yes, we're to model a dependency because Jesus did, but we're also um, we're supposed to take on dependency because it reorients, it changes everything about our life. Uh, for example, we, we come to church, um, we participate in community, we hear the word taught, we hear you are a sinner, Jesus is the aton- atonement for our sin, and we have life because he lived, and we all say Amen. We may, have, we may even listen to three sermons from three different churches just to ensure that we are encouraged every single week. But throughout the week, I think what we struggle with is that um, when we think about dependence, we, we believe it, we know it, but it's not, that, it's not deeply personal. Um, the way we interact with it says something very, very different. I think when we go throughout the week and uh, we, after listening to all these sermons and 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 wanting to be encouraged, we find ourselves starving for intimacy. I've heard that so many times in Bible studies and and uh, and different groups of saying like, how do I how do I even get that that level of dependency, that level of intimacy with God? And I think it's I think it's um, in large part because we just approach God with closed fists. We cannot surrender. We look to God and say, hey, hang on. Um, yeah, I know, I know you encouraged me. I know I was raising my hand in worship last week, but now this is my life and I've got this. I'm the hero. But all God's trying to say is the root of the gospel is, no, 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 no. You don't have this, but I've got this. What we see in the apostles uh, in Acts 5 is, is dependence. And, uh, and I want to talk about three things um, this this morning. One, dependence is a posture. Two, dependence has real power. And three, dependence leads to peace. So it's a posture first. It, lead, it has real power, and then it leads to peace. So first, posture. Verse 17, uh, the apostles are, are, again, in front of the religious authority um, who are filled with jealousy, um, because of the the credibility the name of Jesus was, was gaining, and they they threw the apostles in prison. But while in prison, an angel of the Lord got them out of prison and told them to go stand in the temple and teach. So they heard from the angel of the Lord, and then some, some translations say they immediately responded at daybreak. It doesn't say they stalled. It doesn't say they pushed back. It doesn't say they, they were scared, and so therefore they, they disobeyed. It says, no, they immediately responded. And I don't know about you guys, but, well, I know some of you in here. I have a rock star wife. Her name's Sam. She's right over here. Um, she's, a, she's awesome. And, uh, and I know I'm looking at several of you in this room. You guys have rock star wives as well. Um, I am, I'm super thankful for her, and uh, I, I was with uh, a guy at the, I work down here at the Cohatch, um, and, and he, he actually came today. he was in the first service, and I, I, I work with him, and he was just in passing. He had no idea that we re, I was even doing this this week, and he said, "Hey, we were talking about something." and he said, "The best advice a mentor has ever given me is that the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord speaks through my wife." And I was like, "Amen, brother. I mean, amen. My wife is, uh, is a personal prophet, I think. Um, she 's my personal prophet. Um, and although there's times, and I think most times she would agree with this, that um, I don't want any part of her prophecy. I I want nothing to do with it. Um, However, I think in the times where where I have a a predetermined posture that's fully dependent on and grounded in a trusted relationship with her, I generally desire to listen and respond. And that's exactly what's happening here. They, they set the tone in four where they open their arms in desperation, asking God, I've got, I don't know what to do here. This opposition is real, but he filled them with boldness to continue teaching. They established a posture of dependency, and God told them, I've got this. So the apostles said, all right, well, then I'm going to respond without hesitancy. The posture that i 'm talking about here um, is really involves the whole build, the whole being it's a it 's a reorientation of the heart 's desires it 's a physical posture and it also is a discipline of the mind. This posture should change you when it's when it 's oriented around the nature of Jesus. Um, the apostles had a very active posture here um, it was a posture of dependence, uh, and that 's important because in the absence of that active posture of, of, of depending on, some, on something else, ideally being God in this scenario, I think there's times in our lives where we depend on other things apart from God. I'm not talking about that, but I think in the absence of not depending on God, what do we depend on? We depend on ourselves. And I think Christian psychologist David Brenner says it, says, it is the difference of willfulness and willingness. He writes specifically, Willfulness, our desire to will ourselves, um, is more against something than for something. It is the motto of, it's my way or no way. It is the unwillingness to offer the prayer of release taught and modeled by our Lord, not my will, but thine be done. The act of willing surrender, however, is a choice of openness. It's a choice of abandonment, of self-determination, a choice of cooperation with God I don't want us to be confused. that Willfulness um, isn't to be confused with, with acting on the strength of conviction or following through on difficult things that need to be done. There's good in, in discipline. There's good in self-discipline that can lead to spiritual maturity and vitality and stirred affections. Those things are good, and the Bible talks about that all the time. But the problem with putting so much stock And our ability to do something and our discipline to get it done um, is that it can develop characteristics very void of the nature of Jesus, like rigidity, pride, anger, fear, control, superiority. I think many of us uh, live a life of discipline where we consistently preach to ourselves, and I know you've heard this. I've said these things to myself this week. Take the hill. Where there is a will, there is a way. Or show up and outlast." Or practice makes perfect. Endure the race. Those, again, those steadfast notions are good, and they lead to good things. But if it's, if it's the discipline itself and your ability to achieve, you are building a house where you're the cornerstone, where you say, I've got this. I'm the hero. And I think the, the outcome, if we're honest, the outcome is one of two things. One, you become super proud of yourself where everyone is inferior to you and you just don't understand why people can't be like you. Or you are enslaved by the continued need to accomplish and terrified of failure, making it almost impossible to think of anyone but yourself. I think we can all admit that those two out- outcomes don't work um, and because and we've, we've experienced them both. I think what happens is you, when you face real challenge, Um, you crumble. Or, when you're so self-consumed, you miss out on on the flourishing that God wants for you. Um, I am, am, uh, this is kind of hard to admit, I'm actually a pretty big fan of myself. Um, No one's ever said, hey, you lack confidence, Adam. (laughs) Um, I I think you you lack confidence. You, yeah, you may lack competence, but you certainly don't lack confidence. Um, I'm not proud of that, by the way, um, at all. But uh, I, I, to be transparent, the last couple to three years, I think, uh, I, I left a career a few years ago, four years ago, um, and now work for a group that we we, we buy companies for a living. Um, and frankly, that, that sounds great. That sounds fun. Um, but it's been a rough, rough few years. It's actually really stunk. Um, we've 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 had lots of failures, and when you're the leader of that, um, you wear the weight of that. Um, and so, I think uh, in the midst of that, I crumbled um, in a lot of ways. I, I think uh, mentally, emotionally crumbled. Um, so. It affects your, my life, it affected my, my involvement here at SOMA, it affects a lot of things, and what I'm realizing is that um, I cared so much about my ability to accomplish that I lost touch with dependence, a dependence that transforms, a dependence that, that provides peace, a, a, a dependence that has power, and, uh, and that's what God wanted. He said, here you go, Adam, you're so, you're so out of touch with me that I'm just going to give you something, and that's some failure. And, uh, and, and good luck. Good luck, because right now you've depended on yourself, but I want you, and I want you to depend on me. I had to give up my willfulness to take on a willingness. In Acts 5, they're experiencing a pretty unjust environment here that would challenge all of our self-discipline, I, I'm pretty sure. For the disciples, it doesn't look good. They're facing death yet again in Acts 5. Um, They're trying to bring guilt of the death of Jesus on the religious leaders, and they say this, verse 29, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are here We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. There is a posture here. We saw it when they responded with urgency and without hesitancy earlier in the chapter, but here we're seeing it with their obedience. We must obey, they said. And there is a posture, as Brenner describes it, of surrender and cooperation with God giving of themselves to obey. They looked to something, I think this is what motivated that, they looked to something that enabled them to do this despite the fear and pain. They fixed their eyes on Jesus who fills them with the ultimate power to speak through them and allowed them to endure what they were about to endure. Again, a posture of dependence doesn't mean that we just sit back passively and allow God to take the wheel that's not what I'm saying, but what it does mean is that these disciplines and efforts are completely worthless if we don't look to Jesus. Open our hands and say, it is not by my power, but it's yours. You recognize that you are completely powerless so that you can take on his power. So that brings me to my second point, power. Dependence has real power. We hear that and we, we get immediately skeptical uh, uh, of power, um, but power is really a gift in the Bible. Um, we first see it, uh, or we see it in a couple ways and, um, in the Bible, and I, I'm going to point them both out. But I w- the first way is we see it right there in the beginning in Genesis. Um, it is it's delivered us. It's it's uh, it, it, it's created. Um, God says, "Hey, I'm I'm creating the whole world, and therefore power is is rooted in the very nature of creation." And it, we see it everywhere. It's fundamental to life. Power and its simplicity is, is the ability to imagine, to, to have an idea, and then to make something from that idea. That's the very nature of power. You, you, you think of something, you, cre- you create, you participate in the making process, and you make something from nothing. We see in Genesis when, when God says... Um, let there be, and there was. Let there be light. Let there be earth. Let there be expanse. And there was. I love Matt mentioned Andy Crouch earlier, and I'm going to mention him a couple places here. He says this But when the words let there be ring through the universe, they accomplish very literally what they describe the creation of being where there was none before. New beings come into existence, each with their own capabilities, potential, and sphere of influence. Indeed, let there be bequeath power to others, making room for more power. By saying, let there be, the Creator God makes room for more being, for more agents, you and me, who could utter their own, let there be. He goes on to say um, that uh, on the, when God says, let us make man, he's saying, He uses the plural for the first time. Let us. Let us make together. We are to participate in the power of making. And that's an invitation uh, to do so. But I think um, power is, is to be used clearly for flourishing in the world. And the only way that you do that in this world, I think, is that if power is paired with love. So power paired with love is what he intends, I think also in right relationship, it is extraordinarily powerful. There's several good examples here in, in, con- in this congregation. I want to point out a few, give some highlights to some people doing some awesome things. There's power in the arts. I think of Nicole, Nicole Bozell, who uses her gift of floral design, floral design to create beauty out of natural elements. There's power in community. I think of Ryan and Carrie Lambert, who are here, sitting right over here, if you want to give them a shout-out. Ryan and Carrie Lambert, who use their gift of relational intentionality to foster community here at SOMA. There's power in teaching. I think of Nolan Duffy, who uses his gift of communicating to show kids at Purdue Polytech how to learn, how to develop. There's power in pioneering. I think of some, some of the youth here at SOMA, the Shields kids, the Roars kids, the McKinnons kids, who are using their gift of courage To create the first youth ministry here at SOMA, that's not easy. It takes some serious boldness. Power combined with love in the right relationship is good. But power without love is extraordinarily dangerous. We see broken power dynamics all around us. Um, And if we're honest, we can think of a way that we have leveraged power at the expense of others simply to advantage ourselves. I, um, the, this can be overt, and we can call them out in politics and in culture and historical uh, injustices, but I think we got to admit that this is us, too. One, think about gossip, right? Where we are socially exploiting others by making ourselves feel better by lowering someone else, pushing someone else to vulnerability so that we can be held at a higher position. I think in business, this is my job. We buy, we buy businesses. And, and our goal is to maximize profits. So how do we do that? How does business do that? In an unhealthy way, we do it by raising revenue, lowering expenses. Which one of the, what is one of the biggest expense columns? People. So we try to pay people as little as we have to to be market relative so that we can maximize our own. We're trying to do that different in what we do. But and I think in, in, and with the right power, it can be done, but it's very difficult. The disciples in this passage had, had no power. They had no political, they had no social, they had no cultural power. They were at the bottom of the religious status spectrum. They were forced into vulnerability as the religious elite were ex- exercising exploitative power through an unjust judi- judicial system, ultimately which they were trying to put them to death. The religious elite, they just. Uh, they could not comprehend the fact that this name, that these apostles, these lowly apostles were speaking of was, uh, was actually more powerful than them. A matter of fact, they, they were actually used to a very godlike power where all of the glory was accruing to them. See, the apostles here had a very different power that the religious elite didn't understand, they, which is the second power that I want to point out Um, It is a new way, really, of exercising power that starts and ends with repentance and forgiveness. We see it in verse 31. God exalted this man to his right hand as a ruler. So he's giving him authority. Then he also um, makes him a savior. And how did he become a savior? By exercising the greatest act of power through vulnerability. He became a savior because he was put to death so that we could have power that is paired with love, one that has the power to forgive and also be forgiven. I'm back to Andy Crouch because I love him, and this is what he says. He says, this is why the love that is in the heartbeat of the Christian story, the father's love for the son and through the son for the world is not simply a sentimental feeling or a distant ethereal ethereal theological truth. But it has been signed and sealed by the most audacious act of true power in the history of the world, the resurrection of the Son from the dead. Power at its best is resurrection to full life, to full humanity. Whenever human beings become what they were meant to be, when even death cannot finally hold its prisoners, then we can truly speak of power. When we, we tether ourselves to Jesus, when we take on the posture of dependence, we received the greatest power in the history of the world, which was only accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I think as we approach Christmas here, um, there's a beautiful picture. There's a beautiful image that we celebrate. We celebrate the, the power we get from dependence. If you look at Luke 1, a young woman who called herself the handmaiden, an agent Of the Lord says, Let it be with me according to your word, making room for God to creatively find a way to restore the world by becoming flesh. And her son, in a garden on the night before he was betrayed, prayed, Yet not my will but yours be done. Because of a young woman who opened her hands and said, Use me, God, do what you need to do. And and her son, Jesus, who said the very same thing, Father, use me, do what you need to do. We get access to the greatest power. So I ask you, tether yourself to Jesus. Fall on your face and go into the world with that loving power that, that creates flourishing. And that's, my ch- that's one of my challenges for you today is think about how you, using that power of, of forgiving and being forgiven, that power that was accomplished in Jesus, that power that we celebrate with the birth of Jesus in this season, how can you use that to go and creatively think of how you're going to create actual flourishing in the world? So we've got posture, we've got power, and lastly, we have peace. Uh, I think peace is a fluffy word that the warrior in us doesn't want to, uh, it doesn't want to really acknowledge. Um, It's hard, and I think um, the apostles certainly had a warrior, They, they had warriors inside of them. Um, But in this moment, when they're facing persecution in verses 31, they act with a divine peace that no human could sustain. Let's look at 41. After Gamaliel convinced the council to release the apostles, it says, they had them flogged, they charged them not to speak, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer, and I'm like, wait, what? How's that? Like, what, what's happening here? I don't want to gloss over it. the The apostles they 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 knew that they had an obligation to God. They knew because of that that they were going to have to disobey the standing authorities, and that they were going to suffer greatly for it. These, think about this for a minute. Um, they're leaving the Sanhedrin, right? They're in verse 41. They get, they get released, but not before they get released, or before they get released, they're beaten, they're flogged, they're to- their backs are torn to shreds, bleeding and bruised. This wasn't just like they got punched once or twice. They, they got whipped, and they're rejoicing. And I think for, for, for them to be able to rejoice, for us to, in a moment like that to be able to rejoice, you have to have a foundation of peace. Just like in chapter 4, they, they took a posture, posture of willingness through, through prayer and surrender, and then they were given power and they have peace in this moment. So, my big question for us is how do we get such a peace? We've got three, three ways that we do. First, I think peace um, has a, we get peace because we are dependent on the promises of Scripture. Promises like Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious, the opposite, peace, about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, very literally here for the apostles, their body, what you, what you will put on. It is not, life more, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life, but seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things will be added to you? See, it was a a deep dependence on those words that they were preaching to themselves as they were standing there in court getting whipped in the back, and the flesh torn from their body that provided a supernatural peace. I think the second thing I think about is, is peace um, th- that creates peace is giving up control. Um, we see this clearly in the lord 's prayer I mean Brenner says this earlier, says this also he says uh, the lord 's prayer inverts everything in the liturgy of the kingdom of self. It is a prayer of surrender. Or just think about it. Um, When we go to the Lord with the Lord's Prayer, it is everything about him and nothing about us. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. I am forgetting the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, it's not your name. He says, it's not your kingdom. It's not you who provide. I provide, I provide the forgiveness. I'm the one who delivers, but what does that do? It's not not a posture of arrogance. It says, let me handle it. I've got it, I've got this. That is the nature of the gospel. You don't, I do. Let Let that give you immense peace. And lastly, I think it is a peace that is founded in community. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside everything, aside every hindrance and, and the sin that, is so easily, that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that, they lay, that lay before them, he endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. This great cloud of witnesses that, that's mentioned here is a community. It's a community. It's the saints that have gone before us, and it's the saints that sit right next to you. In this room, in this congregation, in MCs, in discipleship. It's those very people that are running this race with you, that are spurring you on, and you all are pointed to Jesus, and that is a, an immense amount of peace why? Because there's comfort in relationship, where you know your neighbor, your, your um, MC leader, your discipleship partner says, I'm with you. I'm with you. There's so much peace in that. This idea of dependency is important. It's important because it changes you. I hope you've seen that. Um, I've hope you've seen that the posture reorients your desires and prepares you to respond to Jesus's voice when he's calling you. The power that he gives you, allows you to create flourishing, real flourishing in the world, and the peace that he reminds you of is only found in Scripture and community. As we close here, close your eyes. Um, I love, like, imaginative exercises, and so I'm going to do one with you. Um, I, I want you to, to, to actually put yourself in verse 40. in in the court, um, standing there with the disciples as they are literally getting flogged. So imagine that, the horrific moment of them getting flogged. You see their faces bruised and bleeding, but they are smiling right at you. And you wonder, how is this so? Then you see an angel of the Lord standing beside them singing a familiar hymn, That we all know and we all sing this time of year. He's singing this angel singing it right into their ear. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks in a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. The angel is reminding them this pain is temporary, but the reward you have in Jesus is paramount. Have peace, my dear children. He's speaking that to them. Jesus chose to come down. The Jesus that you were sacrificing for, he chose to come down from the most powerful position of all, became powerless, endured the cross, suffered infinite pain And why? And this is what he whispers in their ear. For you, so that you can have the best gift ever, so your souls feel their worth, and you who are weary can rejoice. And as you fall to your knees and your backs are bleeding, celebrate this with me, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. Brothers and sisters, have a posture of dependence, receive the most loving power of all, and rest and a peace that transcends all sufferings. Let's pray. God, you're good, um, and we're thankful. We're thankful that uh, we uh, we have someone to depend on that gives us things that we could never imagine. That gives us a power that transforms the world. That gives us um, a, a sense of security. That when we surrender. We know things are taken care of. Lord, let us give us the power to do that. We love you.